Before we jump into the sermon this morning, there are a couple of more things that I want to bring to your attention. I, I did mention Mom's Morning Out next Saturday. Please be aware of that. The other thing that I want to remind you, look, one of the things that I always, that I always feel and that I always hear is the fact that I always feel like and hear from y'all that we don't get the chance to sing enough music, enough to sing enough at Christmas time. These are some amazing, wonderful, theologically, biblically rich songs that we sing maybe for a month, a year. So, next Sunday, you're going to have another opportunity to go out and sing some Christmas music. Meet at the church at 4 o'clock, and we're going Christmas caroling. Um, If you want to come, bring your favorite pot of chili And we will have and share chili when we get back after Christmas caroling. But be here at 4 o'clock next Sunday for Christmas caroling and chili following. The other thing is this. We have a very special service planned for Sunday morning, December the 25th. This is one of those years where Christmas falls on a Sunday. And there are a lot of people who don't know what they're doing this year. There are some churches that are canceling service because it's Christmas morning. There are some services who are doing just what they've always done on a Sunday morning. I decided that we would do something a little special. We are going to have on Christmas morning what's called a service of lessons and carols. There are about nine scripture readings that take us through the Bible, through the entire story of God's redemption that that manifests itself, that incarnates itself at Christmas in Jesus Christ. So we're going to be reading those nine scripture lessons, and we're going to be singing carols between them. So there's going to be lots of singing, so don't blow your voice out the night before. There's going to be lots of scripture reading, and there's going to be precious little anything else. So be here on Christmas morning for that very special service. I am very much looking forward to it as we continue to plan that service. We are continuing our series entitled The Heart of Christmas. Uh, um, We have been in this series for a couple of weeks. We will continue to be in this series uh, for um, another week or two as we continue this journey toward and through the Christmas season. As I said earlier, I I think I'm beginning to, to feel it in the air um, you know, there is that old uh, song, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And it is, although we're in the south, so there's not snow everywhere. Some days it's 90 degrees with 90% relative humidity, and Santa has to wear shorts. But, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. One of the things is, and I'm sure your family experiences this, is You move through the season, there are traditions in your family, right, that you do. One of the emerging traditions in our family is this trip to Williamsburg to visit with Audrey's family, to share Christmas a little early with two pastors in the family, her father and me. The likelihood of us spending time at Christmas for the foreseeable future is slim to none. But we get a chance to go, and and it's always wonderful to be in Williamsburg at Christmas, to be in the historic area and see the the wreaths and the decorations that are on the homes there. Um, The historian, former CW employee inside of me, is important to note that those decorations are not period correct. They are, in fact, colonial revival decorations created in the 1930s 
that in the actual 18th century, there would not have been those kinds of decorations on the houses. All right, history lesson is done for the day. Um, but also, one of the things that we do is we go to Bush Gardens and we go to Christmastown. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Christmastown at Bush Gardens, but it's fantastic. Bush Gardens Williamsburg is one of the most beautiful theme parks in the country. I know that because they win that award every year. Um, and uh, they throw lights over everything in the park. And it is absolutely fantastic. And then they have Christmas shows in the various theaters as they go through. Um, one, of the, one of the must-dos every year is to see Scrooge No More, um, which is a very abbreviated version of the Christmas Carol story told in um, the quote-unquote Globe Theater um, in the England section. Um, it is not the Globe Theater, and I know that because it is not, in fact, round. Um, but it was interesting this year. I've gone to Christmas Town every year for close to 10 years. It was interesting this year because this year I had a 17-month-old. Now, last year he went and he was, you know, I guess, you know, five months, six months old. And it was great because he's looking. But a 17-month-old is much more into the lights and Santa Claus and all of the fun stuff than a six-month-old is. And so watching him as we rode the train around the periphery of the park looking at all of the lights was fantastic. You know, and those things were great. And in fact, it gave me great joy, but it's not what is at the heart of Christmas. We are in the middle of this series to discover what is at the heart of Christmas. And it's so easy in the gifts and the decorations and the traditions and the parties and all of the fun that we can have. And in all of the wide-eyed wonder from the little ones to get lost and to forget and to miss what the central focus of Christmas really is. You know, Jesus was born to bring gifts to us. We talk about the gifts that are brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but Christ was born to bring gifts to us, gifts of hope and peace and joy and love. And it's those gifts and the, the gift of Christ himself that is the real focus for this season. So the first week, a couple of weeks ago, we we learned that we are offered hope in the middle of our circumstances because of God's faithfulness. And last week, we saw that we look at the wonderful gift of peace that is Jesus' sacrifice makes available to us. Not a peace that is an absence of conflict, but a peace that is the presence of reconciliation with the Father. We are made right with God, with ourselves, and with others because of Jesus. And so this week, we look at joy. And a joy that is ours no matter the circumstances. As we begin, I want to think about a couple of different scenarios that might bring you joy. Now this is something that is going to get you out of your comfort zone. Because this is audience participation. So, if your significant other is asleep, now is the time to nudge them and wake them up. If the thing that I'm about to say gives you joy, I want you to stand up. If it doesn't give you joy, I want you to stay seated. Okay? The first one. You go through the drive-thru to get your favorite order. Maybe it's a coffee order or or something else. You go through your your drive-thru to get your favorite order order and you discover that the car in front of you has paid for your order. If that gives you joy, stand up. 
Okay? You can sit down. The next one is this. You wake up on Christmas morning, and I am so sorry that Sissy is not here. I know why Sissy is not here, but I am so... This, is, this was made... This illustration was made for Sissy. You wake up on Christmas morning and discover that it has snowed four inches. If that gives you joy, stand up. All right, you may be seated. One more. One more. You actually remember to water your Christmas tree, and so it doesn't turn, out, turn into a dried-out, needle-dropping mess before Christmas Day. If that gives you joy, stand up. And we see who the artificial tree users are in the room. Some of these are, situ- these are great reasons for joy, man. I love it. I mean, there is nothing in the world that I love more than going through the McDonald's drive through on Sunday morning to find out that somebody has bought my biscuit. Or to drive through a, a, a Starbucks drive through to find out that somebody was very happy to find out that my order is normally a medium drip coffee and not something that cost $87. And they've paid for my order. But... Here's the thing. Sometimes we allow our joy to be connected to the circumstances in our life. Sometimes when things go well and our order gets paid for or we get snow or the needles don't fall off the Christmas tree, when things go well, we feel good. But when things don't go well, it's a normal morning and McDonald's gets our order wrong where the leaves fall off the Christmas tree, or it's 90 degrees on Christmas morning, we feel bad. Our joy ebbs and flows, buffeted by the waves of outrageous fortune of our lives. This is something that I believe. I believe that Jesus came so that our joy would not have to fluctuate with our environment. Our main text today is just one verse from the book of John. One verse from the book of John, the first chapter of John. I am going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word together, but it's going to be John 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14 is the only verse, only the main verse for the today. The Word, meaning Jesus, meaning the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear precious holy God, as we read your word, study your word, dig into your word today, I pray that you would give us joy, that we would see how this verse shows us that our joy should not ebb and flow, but should abound and overflow always from the gift that you have given us. 
And so, God, I pray as we read your word, as we study your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. The, the Gospels are interesting because we have four of them, but only two of them tell the narrative of Christ's birth. That's Matthew and Luke. And Matthew and Luke both tell different parts of the narrative of Christ's birth, of Jesus' birth. Mark has nothing about the advent of Christ. Christ just sort of shows up as a fully grown man in Mark's gospel. There's reasons that Mark does it that way. And when we study Mark someday, we will get into those reasons. But John does this other thing. See, John is writing a, a little bit later than the other gospel writers, John is writing into a slightly different set of circumstances going on in the early church. He's writing into an early church that has been invaded by Greek philosophy. In particular, a Greek philosophy known as Gnosticism. This idea that there is secret knowledge and that there's, there's the, the physical world and the um, spiritual world and that these two things are at odds with each other. They are, in fact, at war with each other. That the physical world is bad. The spiritual world is good. Anyone who believes that has never seen a sunset or the Grand Canyon. But that is who John's writing into. So John's gospel is a little more philosophical, a little more theological than the other Gospels, particularly this prologue, this very famous prologue from the Gospel of John that this singular verse that we look at today comes from. And so, so he's trying to, to show us what's happening not on the micro level of this village of Bethlehem, but what's happening on the cosmic level with the advent of Christ. And so he testifies to the glory of this thing that we call the incarnation. That does not mean being inside a little white flower. Okay? Carnation, incarnation, comes from, actual from Latin. It's not a Greek word. It's a Latin word. And it comes from the Latin word carne. Now, if any of you are lovers of Mexican food, you know what carne means. Carne asada means meat, means flesh. That's, that's what, what, what's happening here. The Greek that, that John uses here for flesh is sarx. It, it's the same, same idea in Latin as carne. It's the same thing. You eat sarx just like you eat carne. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a thing that John is doing here where he's saying, no, Jesus became flesh. Jesus became this stuff. The stuff that you are not, the stuff that all the Gnostics are going to tell you is bad and evil and wrong. That is when God came to do his work, that is what God became. He became flesh. Jesus is the son here is called the word with a capital W because he is perfectly embodies all of Scripture and human flesh by the way he lived here on earth. All of this is found in the person of Christ. But John's also doing this thing where he's playing. There is this concept in Greek philosophy of the logos, meaning word, being 
It's where we get logic from, right? And that's the word that he's using here, logos. John's playing with all of these words and all of these concepts because what he's trying to tell us is that when Jesus was born in a manger, he was the embodiment of the divine essence. He was the embodiment of God's Word come in skin and bone and flesh and blood to live among us as one of us. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Matthew tells us that. And so he's the divine Son of God become a man. He's thus the the God-man. Not half man, half God, but one person with a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. Jesus is deity poured into humanity. He is fully human, so he cried as an infant despite what infant holy, infant lowly might have you believe. But he's also fully divine. And so even as he cried as an infant, he was giving life to his mother. He was fully human, so he had to sleep. But he was also fully divine, so he could raise the dead to life. Only our God fully experienced what it is to be human and yet was without sin. He faced hunger and pain and temptation, grief, hardship, and rejection. There is no category of human experience that your Savior has not endured. So I want you to stop just for a moment. Imagine your worst day. Your Savior knows what that is. That is what makes our gospel, our good news, the truth of what we say so different from everything else. God lived among us. He dwelt among us. The the Greek there has actually pitched his tent. He tabernacled. He moved into the neighborhood so that he could know what it was to be human, so that we would know that he knew what it was to be human. And this brings us to our first point. We can have joy because God came to us. We can have joy because God came to us. See, there's this common misconception that people carry around with them that to be reunited with God and right relationship with Him, we have to work super hard to be perfect. That we've got to work super hard to strive to make our way to Him. That's one of the great joy robbers in our lives is that we think we can do that. We think we have to do that and we think we can do that We can be good enough even when we know that we can't. And it sucks the joy out of our lives. We are broken and flawed people who hurt others. We make mistakes. We live selfish lives. And if we rely on our abilities to earn connection to God, we will always be disappointed. Because we walk into our lives and it is a mess. 
was reading a story this week that Paul Thigpen wrote in the Discipleship Journal um, put out by the Navigators, and he was talking about that one afternoon he came home, and as he came home and came into the kitchen, the kitchen was an absolute disaster. Dirty pots and pans everywhere, ingredients all over the kitchen, just an absolute, utter disaster done. He could tell that his daughter had been cooking. And she was not, and he was not happy. But as he looked around, he saw a note on the table that said, I'm making something for you, Daddy. And in the midst of all of the mess, joy sprang up in his heart. Because he stopped focusing on the mess and focused on his daughter. With her simple goodness and focus, he could take pleasure in seeing her hand at work in the situation that seemed otherwise disastrous. If you've ever been in the kitchen when I am cooking, you know what a disaster zone can look like. I I have a pathological need to dirty every dish in the entire kitchen when I make something. But in that mess, something comes out of it for us. This is the same with our joy in God. Many times, life can look like it's a messy disaster when we walk into it. We can't tell what's going on. There's flour everywhere. Why are there six eggs over there and two over there? Why in the world is the Easter bowl down with stuff inside of it? Everything is messy. But if we look closely we might see that God is coming near to us like he did at that first Christmas, letting us know that he's making something in our lives when we're tempted to feel hopeless. Joy is at the heart of Christmas because knowing that we could never make it to him, God came to us. Again, this is the thing that makes faith in Jesus Christ different from every other religion in the world. They'll tell you, oh, it's all the same. They all teach the same thing. No, they don't. Because whether it's Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or Shintoism, no matter what it is, it's what you can do to make your way to him. And what we say is we can't make it, so let me tell you what he did so he could come to us. That's hope and peace and joy And love all together. Paul emphatically makes this statement in the book of Romans. He says in Romans 5.8, But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got everything cleaned up. Not after we got, you know, got the suit out of the closet and took it to the dry cleaners and cleaned up and sobered up and got everything together and made it to church on time at 11 o'clock. Or actually, no, 11 o'clock is late, 10.55. No. While we were yet sinners, while our stuff was still a mess, while everything was running around, while we had no idea who God was or what He had done for us, Christ died for us. This is why... 
the characters in the Christmas story are so overjoyed, whether it's the shepherds in the field or Simeon in the temple, because the long-awaited arrival of the Messiah meant that God had finally come to rescue and save his people. That brings us to point two. God loves us just as we are, and too much of us, and too much to leave us that way. God loves us as we are, and too much to leave us that way. The second reason joy can be a constant reality in our lives is because of how much God loves us and is committed to our transformation through his power. Looking further in John chapter 1, we see John telling his readers, telling us that it's through Jesus that we see the glory and fullness of God. His arrival among us should fill us with joy, not only because did God come to close to us, but because he loves us. Because he loves us, he comes. I was asked just a couple of weeks ago about John 3.16, about it being the most joyful verse in Scripture. For God so loved the world. The, the, the animating aspect of Jesus coming to us is God's love for us. And you're not just tolerated by God, by the way. It's not like he's like, okay, well, I guess, I mean, I guess I'll let him in. But he's got to step over there and can't interact with the rest of the party. He loves us. He deeply loves us. In fact, John tells us that the love that God has for us is like the love of a father for his children. That Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a key to understanding this, that when Jesus came to us, he came full of grace. This grace that John writes about means that favor and kindness and and a gift of a blessing. It's, It's like a wrapped gift shared from one to another can bring joy into our hearts. So this gift of Jesus is grace from God. It's a gift that we haven't earned. It's a gift that we do not deserve, but it's a gift that God offers to us anyway, and when we recognize it, it fills us with joy. Because even in our sin and rebellion, God loves his people enough to send the Son to become flesh. So Jesus came in grace, but he also came in truth. The word truth here is, means divine reality revealed. Jesus holds grace in one hand that allows us to be adopted into the family of God, but in the other hand, he holds truth that shows us the areas of our lives that must be transformed to live the fullest life possible. The grace means very little until we see the truth. The book of 1 John expounds upon this idea. John writes again in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. John insists that the reason Jesus came to us and manifested His love among us is because He desires for us to find incredible joy in Him. And in order for this to happen, it requires a gift of truth and grace. It's the most loving thing to do for another, to embrace with full acceptance, but also with truth-telling. 
Which brings us to point three. Joy is a result of grace. Grace is a word that we use a lot in the church. It shows up a lot. In fact, there are some churches out there that are even grace church in the name, right? Grace Baptist Church, Second Grace Baptist Church, Grace Friendship Baptist Church. That was originally one church that split three times. It shows up a lot. There's a reason for that. Grace shows up so much in in God talk, in church talk, because that's the way in which we're able to live life with joy. Our Heavenly Father sent Jesus to a manger in Bethlehem because He wanted to dwell among us to demonstrate His amazing grace and His life-changing truth. We can experience joy in our lives no, (coughs) no matter the circumstance because we can be confident in knowing that God is with us and because we have been grafted into God's family, God is for us. Y'all know I couldn't get through a sermon probably without referencing Charles Spurgeon, so here it is. Um, Spurgeon wrote this. There's a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful. But this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. This blessed joy is very contagious. One dolorous spirit brings a kind of plague into the house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. And we have the joy because of grace. Brothers and sisters, let me offer this to you. If you do not have the joy... We need to have a conversation about you feeling and understanding and receiving the grace. Because once you experience the grace, (laughs) the joy is inevitable. Now, that doesn't mean that every day is a walk in the park. So my prayer for you is that this Christmas... You may come to find at the heart a deep and abiding joy because the love of God incarnated the Son who lived a sinless life, who died on a sinner's cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and rose on the third day so that our sins be placed onto him and the price paid and the robe of his righteousness draped about our shoulders so that we can be brought into the family of God. Have you ever seen one of those videos when the kid finds out that their stepdad is adopting them? Or one of those videos where the Stepdad finds out that the kid wants them 
to adopt them. One of my best friends got married a couple of years ago. His wife had a daughter. Chris asked Anna Lee the first year, the first Christmas, that he was his stepdad, what she wanted for Christmas. And she said, for Christmas, I want you to be my daddy. The joy. We've all seen those videos. Take that joy and multiply it out to fill the entirety of creation and beyond. And that is the joy that we experience when we are adopted into the family of God because of what happens first in a manger and then on a dusty Galilean road and then on a cross outside Jerusalem and then in an empty tomb. That is the creator of the universe saying, all I want for Christmas is for you to be my baby. I don't know what our hymn of invitation is going to be. It's going to be a Christmas song.